from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Tracy Fullerton is a player and maker of games. Her most recent game, Walden, puts you, the player, inside Thoreau's Walden Pond experiment. Tracy runs the USC Digital Media and Games Program, the top game design school in the country, according to the Princeton Review. We co-taught multiplayer game design together when that program was first getting started. And Tracy has gone on to train innovative designers like Genova Chen, creator of Journey. The most successful designers that I've seen, they continue to be open to the problems and keep hacking away at those problems and keep perfecting, keep making their solutions more elegant. I love and admire Tracy, and I'm thrilled to have her with us today to share her perspective on teaching, playing, and creating compelling and meaningful games. Tracy, thank you for joining us for the Getting to Alpha podcast. Let's start by learning a little bit about your background. How did you get started? What did you study and what experiences changed your path along the way? This is a really funny question. So there are actually, those are like two different questions really. So what I studied in school, and by that I think you mean university, uh, I studied mostly literature and film because I always thought I was going to be in media. But when I was a kid, I was a maker. My family is all maker. You know, basically our garage was our studio. Um, You know, we made films and plays and When we got computers, we made games, just basically making things all the time. And it it seemed to me when I went to school that the the only programs that were doing that kind of making that I had been so interested in were the film programs because uh, there really wasn't anything in games. Um, And there wasn't what we think of now as a digital media. Uh, There was early, early computer science, but it wasn't the kind of making, the media making that I was interested in. So I studied film and uh, I studied uh, strangely in a, in a theater program because even film was too young at that time. So I'm giving away my age here, right? So even film was too young at that time to have its own program where I went to school. So I was actually in the theater department hacking together sets and, and, and again, making and, um, and uh, really being experimental. Um, but when I got out of school, uh, the first job I got was in the burgeoning digital media industry, working for a project that IBM had put together. And again, it was very much just people hacking stuff together and making stuff. And so I was, I was hooked. I was hooked on, on um, I was able to take the programming skills I taught myself as a kid and the media skills that I'd gone to school and learned uh, and put them together as part of um, this really new form. Um, and, and always throughout my career, I've been five to ten years uh, kind of ahead of the curve kind of asking questions and making things that are a little too – that were a little too forward thinking. And so one of the things I learned in my career was that, you know, timing is everything. And, and it is actually one of the reasons I went to academia after being at a number of startups, because in academia, you can explore these interesting questions that are five to 10 years out. And it's actually a benefit to you. 
to explore them deeply uh, and then maybe help other people bring them to market. Um, whereas in business, of course, um, you don't want to innovate out on the very edges. You need to be in a sort of, uh, there's a sort of a sweet spot of innovation, um, but still within the imagination of the public that, that makes it work. Basically, I come from a family of makers and I, I kept making. And uh, even though I studied film in school, uh, that was probably one of the least of my influences. It, that was great. And it's really interesting for me to hear that because even though I've known you for many years, I hadn't really put together your film background with your gaming background. And it's actually perfect because it leads so naturally to what you're doing right now. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about your book. It's in the third edition now. What motivated you to first write it? Well, the motivation was pretty simple. So I started teaching very early on. Um, about the time I started working uh, in industry, people started coming to me and saying, hey, will you be my mentor on my thesis project? I was in New York at the time, and the School of, Cine uh, the School of Visual Arts had a bunch of people doing what today we call Arduino, but and back then it was just um, people um, doing extensions to director to make toasters pop at all the same time and things like that. And they came in and, and because I was working in the field and some expertise in, in extending what was then the core tool, which was director, they would ask me to be their thesis advisor. And I wound up being then asked to teach an actual thesis course. And out of that, they asked me to teach a game design course because that's what I was focused on. And uh, way back then, there, you know, there really wasn't this concept that you could teach people to design games. In fact, I remember going to the game developers conference and saying, I was doing this. I was talking to Will Wright, and he's like, well, I'm not sure that, you know, you can teach people to do that. Don't they just kind of know how to do it or not? Because I think that's how people like Will Wright learned, right? I mean, now you think people just did it themselves, right? So where were you teaching this early course? The earliest one was at the School of Visual Arts in, in New York. And, um, uh, you know, basically I was in an environment where there was a bunch of people I was working with professionally, uh, Eric Zimmerman and Frank Lance and Karen Seidman and um, a bunch of other folks. And we were all trying to, they were also beginning to teach classes. And so we, we kind of got together and developed our ideas. We would play test our ideas for teaching together and, and then bring them into our classes. We started develop the, developing a kind of rigorous methodology for teaching game design. And it started working. We started having really good students. Around that time, I actually moved to California, and I moved the, my, my version of the class to USC. And, uh, you know, we sort of wound up with this New York, uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, similarity, I guess you would say, to the basis of these schools of thoughts around teaching games. You people, When you teach games, people start to find you on the Internet, and a lot of young people would write to me and say, how can I take your class? I'm not, I can't go to USC. I'm, I live in, like, Utah or whatever. And it's occurred to me that uh, I should write a book because – a lot of young people were interested in this form and they would not be able to come to find either me or the folks, the other folks I knew who were teaching games or from the ground up. So I wound up writing this book as a workshop that you could do on your own. Even though I use it in my classes, the notion would be that it could stand on its own as a workshop that young people could do step by step. And by the time they got to the end of it, 
Um, they would have a lot of skills around where to start with designing a game, what the sort of steps to prototyping and sort of finding an idea was, and then you know where what they should do when they wanted to get a team together and start building an idea, putting it in front of users, how to react to feedback, all of these like sort of granular steps that are often, I think, skipped in a, a lot of books about creativity. A lot of times it's in books about creativity, the advice is just do it, which is, you know, good advice, by the way. There are a lot, there's a lot more granularity to it, I think, that is, uh, let's see, it's like, it's like every shovel full of the ditch you're digging, right? You just really have to talk about, you know, how it is that you get those users to come and test it, how it is that you listen to people, what it is that you're comparing their feedback against. So the book was based on the class that I was teaching from the exercises out, What's new in the third edition? Well, what's new, you know, I have a little bit of guilt about that book in that the very first edition, most of the designers that we interviewed were men. You know, it was really, I wasn't, it's, it wasn't an attempt to, I mean, it was just an oversight. I went back and I, I did a ton of interviews this time. And if you look through the book, there there's a, a much larger diversity of who is being interviewed, what they're being interviewed about. So it's not just all AAA games. There's there's a, uh, a look at indie games and games for, for uh, upcoming uh, platforms like the Oculus Rift. Uh, mobile games and there's a lot of there's women there's um, there's uh, people who are transgender there's you know uh, I mean I just try to really there are, there are there are start folks who are startups there are students and um, you know so try to mix in what I think of as the new voices sounds like the development of your book has really mirrored the development of the gaming industry I hope so uh, the core methodology is is the same. I didn't change anything in this edition about the core methodology, but there are examples that um, are drawn from a much wider uh, perspective. When you go about crafting a new project and when you teach that in the stages where you're crafting up the simplest possible thing to show to people and start getting feedback, how do you go about it? The shorthand on the first part, which is how I go about it, is that I start with the goals of the project and often the goals of the project are around the player experience. If we're doing a research game that has very specific goals, for example, we want to teach middle school kids the scientific method. We want to engage them um, as kind of proto-scientists in the scientific method. That that may be a starting point. Uh, and then everything that we do, uh, you know, sort of springs from the, that central pillar. Uh, and there may be more than one pillar, by the way, but let's just, you know, talk about the sort of design, the experience, the player experience goal as, as, a, as the most important one. For me, I found as I get older, it's often easier for me to identify that pillar uh, than it is for my students. Um, so I, I see that that is something that's gained with experience. So with my students, I do something di- slightly different. Um, and that is I will often start them with uh, essentially design exercises that remove a lot of the complexity of the process. So I may start them with an existing system and I may give them a design goal 
And then I may ask them to basically redesign the existing system in order to meet the design goals. So what I've done there is I removed the uh, beginning components of design um, and I've just put them in front of, it's almost like a chess problem. And so, so there are, I think when you're learning to design, one of the best things you can do is do these kind of crafted problems because they'll train, they, they, they train your mind to solve design problems. And design problems are a lot, in, in many ways, they are light kind of chess problems, right? And so once you've trained yourself to be able to meet a design, uh, an ex- player experience goal, then it's easier to now set your own goals and um, create your own systems. Are those exercises in your book? The most common one is, and then it's easy to generate your own based on uh, your own needs, but the most common one is basically what I just described, which is taking a simple existing system and uh, changing the, the a player experience goal. So uh, that's pretty much the f- most famous design that I do, and I use a game from Robinsberger, uh, which is a great, great little system and called Up the River. Um, it, has, it's, it has, like, all the elements of a game and nothing more. Like, it's just, it has, you know... Um, there are four players, they each have three pieces, they're trying to make their way up a river, and so the obstacles are a sandbar and the current of the river. And then the pa- there's a power-up, right? And there's a goal, and there's, you know, a method of movement. There's, like, all the things that you need, right? And nothing more. It's, like, the simplest little game. <clears throat> and this game, I've seen this redesigned thousands of times. I've seen it redesigned with so many different player experience goals. Um, so it's, it's, it's a funny little game that works very well. It's kind of almost like an empty vessel. So we were talking about the process you go when you're crafting a new project for yourself, really honing in on the purpose and the pillars of the design. I think part of that is understanding the constraints, right? Uh, I, you know, I think it's Orson Welles who said the enemy of, uh, art is a lack of constraints. And I, and I really firmly believe that, that, you know, if you give people a completely blank slate and you say, okay, design the greatest interactive experience ever, then people will just sit there. The most creative people in the world will just sit there with a blank look on their face, right? But if you give them, oh, I don't know, um, a thumbtack and a pin cushion and, you know, a dollar bill and you say, okay, let's make a game. You have 15 minutes. I'll bet you anything that they can actually come up with something clever using those materials and and those constraints. So often the other thing that I'll do, um, especially recently because we've been working a lot in my lab with um, real world problems around education, we will go and uh, interview the stakeholders. So we'll spend time with teachers, um, with students, with parents in the environment, seeing, you know, just what kind of equipment they have available, how often they have it available, you know, who gets to use it and when. You know, so a lot of people don't know the, the, their own constraints around technology. And you have to sort of watch them like an ethnographer, um, see, oh, I see, there actually aren't enough computers for all students to get one. It, they're teaming up. Nobody said anything about the students in this class teaming up. They just assume it because it, it, that's what they do. But uh, when we asked them, they never said, oh, we team up. Uh, so there's a lot of things that people do that you can find out if you follow them. Um, you go to their place, you know, wh- where they'll be using the technology. You, Those are not so much part of the, the experience goal, because obviously if you're making a product, you, you wish that everyone could have perfect access to it. 
uh, but they are a, they are a different kind of constraint that you have to keep in mind sometimes. You've uh, had the rare experience of watching many, 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 many teams creating and testing early design. And some of those teams have gone on and done great things. What are the common mistakes you see people make when they're creating and testing their early designs that if you could wave a magic wand and say, I would like you to do better, you could get rid of? The most common mistake is thinking they've got it. You bring in your first or second or even third design and you think you've got it. You know, once you love something, that is not the time to stop listening to the to the users, to the players, to the testers. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of times we fall in love with our own designs and we tend to, you know, we might not fall in love with the first one, but, you know, maybe by the fifth or the sixth, we're starting to fall in love with it. And then we stop seeing the body language the face, you know, the sort of facial expressions um, when people are testing, we, we, we explain those away. The most successful designers that, that I've seen are the ones that continue to not, it's not that they're not in love with their, because they really love what they're doing, but they continue to be open to the problems and keep hacking away at those problems and keep perfecting, keep making their solutions more elegant. There was an advertisement for this new movie, Whiplash. Has anybody seen it? And they're playing the drums. And at the end, and it's about, I don't exactly know, but it's definitely about creative drive. And at the end, somebody says, the, you know, the, the enemy of greatness is, uh, there's the two words that are the enemy of greatness. It's, it's a uh, good job, right? Uh, and I, I, that just really hit me because uh, I say that all the time, just by the way, I say that to my students all the time, but maybe I'll stop because the designers that I see that really have done great things are the ones that never tell themselves they've done a good job. They tell themselves, they ask themselves, you know, okay, that's good. That's good. What's next? Ownership in teams is a funny thing. We all need to feel it because that's what keeps us invested. But co-ownership is even more important. There's this weird tension between I'm investing my energy, my creative, you know, spirit into something. And so I feel deeply, I feel that I own it, right? And that's a good feeling. I try to teach my students to use the word we a lot when they talk about their their projects, because it's important to acknowledge that everyone owns it. Everyone uh, needs to feel that sense of, of authorship and ownership. It's not something we teach, I've noticed. It's not something we teach in, in you know, uh, in school. We teach you not to copy. We teach you not to actually uh, you know, in groups, um, everyone, I guess, tends to have a role. We don't really grade you as a team. And yet here, when we get to uh, uh, something like industrial design or, or software design or, you know, any of these, these more advanced kinds of environments, it's very important that we all get, quote unquote, graded as, as a team. In your position, given what you know, if you're giving tips to first-time entrepreneurs who really want to be smart about prototyping and iterating their early designs, what would you tell them? It's like, here's two or three good tips to get you started. You know, one of the first ones is kind of obvious, but it's, it's you know, design for a problem, not design for an idea. 
right? So this is this this is not now we're not talking about just being creative. Now we're actually talking about building a successful business. And and this is something that I, I know I have not done as well as I, I could have in my career because I'm I just tend to be more of a creative person. But if you design for a problem, then your design, you know, by its nature is going to have some market value. If you're designing because you come up with a cool idea and so it's you're more designing for creativity your design may or may not have uh, market value. And I'm speaking as someone who who's run to the academy because I want to research kind of deep long-term issues rather than having to deal with the market all the time. But I think that being an entrepreneur and being out there on the front lines is critically important. And um, being successful almost always has to be, it, it has to do with addressing a problem that people have right now and being just slightly more innovative than the other solutions that they could find. Not not too innovative because then you sort of drive them away. So for me, I think it's, you know, start your design process by identifying the what the problem is um, and how your solution can advance people's uh, experience of that problem. And the, the, the next thing I would say is um, in terms of you know, iteration um, is get a core, get access to a, a group of your core audience. You know, make that one of your first tasks is to find access, easy access, so that you can test with new people, but who have put her in your market um, very quickly, right? So uh, maybe once a week, you should be testing new iterations of your of your idea, and. The iterations don't have to be very deep. I mean, they can be uh, storyboards. They can be paper prototypes, right? These don't have to be things that uh, you spend a lot of money on. In fact, uh, it, you can do a much broader exploration uh, um, if you, you know, take five paper prototypes into a group um, and then, you know, wind up throwing three of them away and taking the next two and sort of um, taking some, some good stuff from each of those into the, into the next iteration. So to me, cheap, fast iteration, especially in the beginning, is a much more powerful tool than really getting something articulate and waiting uh, and then taking it in because you're gonna you're gonna run into that problem I discussed where you're in love with your own idea if you if you spend too much time articulating it just by nature you're not gonna want to change all of it um, so you know just doing that really quickly and finding access to <clears throat> your core audience which can be very difficult by the way um, just as just an example in my own work we've been doing as I mentioned a lot of educational games and so we just basically have have put together a group of middle school and high school teachers uh, who like what we're doing and we've done nice things for them. We've invited their classes in and um, we've done workshops for them. And, and so because we've done that, we now have a relationship with them. And when we need to test a card game that we've been working on for just two days that we have an idea about, um, we say, you know, we haven't worked very hard on this. It might not work, but we really need, you know, 10 of your kids to come in and play a card game. Then they'll send us 10 kids. It's a it's a fair exchange. So so making sure you have a kind of revolving door of the kind of users that you need to test um, your your designs um, can be really important. And that's it. Nobody ever talks about it. But it's actually kind of time consuming to find those people. The other thing, this is kind of a, this is kind of silly, but 
a lot of, I think, entrepreneurs are shy about telling their ideas because they think people are going to steal them. The more you pitch it, the more you'll hone it. You'll get to the point where you actually be able to say in one sentence what your problem is, what your solution is, and why it's better than everything else out there, you know, in basically a sentence or maybe two sentences. So my, my, my advice would be to keep pitching, keep pitching until you have honed your, the kernel of what your pro- the problem is, what your solution is, and why it's better down to a sentence or two. What's your superpower as a designer? This is going to sound so weird, and I think maybe the people that work with me would have different answers. Uh, but for me, I guess the answer is, um, is empathy. For whatever reason, I think I'm actually really good at putting myself in the place of the player, um, also of my team members. Because I'm, I'm, you know, a team lead, my job often isn't the person to have the ideas. My job, although, I mean, obviously I have a lot of ideas, but my job sometimes is to get other people to generate ideas. And, and, and to do that, you have to sort of have empathy with where they're at and what, they, what environment they need to, to really work well. But in terms of the players, that's where I think I I do really well. Like a lot of times designers, as I mentioned, fall in love with their designs. I'm really good, I think, at playing a prototype and putting myself in the place of someone who isn't connected to it. Playing it cold, but playing it with the sense of, oh, what would I be feeling if I was this person or that person? And that's about empathy. So it's just something that uh, I feel like is, is a really powerful tool. In terms of the projects I like to work on and sort of the, I guess, the sweet spot of um, design, right now and for the last about 10 years, I've been working on games that, that attempt to express and to elicit deeper emotions than the traditional games. And so I really love to work on projects that are heartfelt, that have real soul in them. I'll tell you, those aren't the projects that pay the bills. You know, in order to keep my team, I also have to go out and get money for, other, for you know, projects that people want to pay for. It's tough because you have to put, you have to like switch your hats back and forth. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned several times that we've been working on these educational games and I love working on them. They're great, but they are the, those are the games that pay the bills. Um, because that's what people are interested in paying us to design. And uh, that's great. I mean, I should get a chance to also innovate while I'm funding my research lab. Uh, The ones I want to work on are more art projects. And here in America, we don't um, fund that. We do not fund the arts. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough because my sweet spot is not one that is something you can actually get money for. A long time ago, I worked for a guy named uh, Bob Greenberg. And Bob Greenberg used to say to me in his funny Bob Greenberg way, say, Tracy, there are projects we do for the bank and there are projects we do for the real. It's like, you want to do the ones for the real and I got to do the ones for the bank. <laughs> 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 so I think that problem just, you know, comes about in everybody's uh, everybody's career in different ways. So tell us about Walden, your project of the heart. I thought about, I, I came up with the idea in 2002, which is when I closed my startup company and I went on a 
journey across the country and went to visit some relatives near Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts. And I was rereading Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And I had this notion, I was sitting on the shore of the pond one day, and I just had this notion reading his discussion of the experiment that he set for himself, that it would be this wonderful game because it's about how do one how does one balance one's life between the things we need to do to survive and maintain ourselves and sort of the things that we do to inspire ourselves. I thought it would make a great game, but I had no idea how to do it. And I sort of wrote about it in my journal and I left it there. In 2007, I was just completing the main design work on a game that I made um, with an artist named Bill Viola. And I'd been through the design of games like Cloud and Flow and then the Night Journey with Bill Viola. And I had a deeper sense of how to, I think, approach a difficult problem. And so I decided to take on this idea that had been hanging around in my head for like five years. And so in 2007, I went out and bought my team copies of the book and we started reading. We basically started with a reading group and talking about the heart of the book and the heart of the experiment and what the system was that was at the heart of that experiment um, and really defining uh, how that system might be playable. Uh, and so we've been working on it ever since, mostly with a team of volunteers. A couple of years ago, I guess um, 2012, we got a small NEA grant and then we got an even smaller grant from USC. These are really like really small grants, but they were enough to sort of give us the credibility to, uh, to push forward. Um, and to keep a lot of the team focused on it. Just this past year, we were accepted into the Sundance Story Lab, which is a mentoring uh, opportunity um, run by Sundance where they bring independent projects in. Um, so we had the opportunity to do that. What's interesting is as I've gone along, I mean, so I've been working on this project for seven years. Uh, as we've gone along, a lot of people have come to do what I call painting the fence. So I, I think of it as sort of the, the, the Tom Sawyer method of producing a game where you know, you just make it look so cool to paint that fence that everybody wants to come and help you paint the fence. And before long, uh, you know, so we've gotten not only the Sundance people, but a lot of the graduate students who've gone through the lab have, have worked on the game. We've had people who subsequently went on to work at like EA or Pixar. Um, the sound designer, Michael Sweet, uh, is an old, old friend of mine. And during the time we were working on the game, this is so weird, by happenstance, he moved to, to Concord to right near Walden Pond and um, is now recording a fully procedural soundscape for the game on site. Just, you know, crazy coincidences like that. And so the game has got these layers of what I've just called, like, you know, people coming in and taking authorship in it and adding their own special sauce to it. And um, it's, it's uh, been a really special um, and interesting experiment to, to run such a long-term project with so, with so little funding. For the first two years, we were all on paper. Then we built 2D prototypes in Flash and then later in Torque. And then we built 3D prototypes in Gamebryo um, and then went to Unity. Once we really decided what we needed, we went to, we went to Unity. This makes me want to play it. <laughs> well, we just showed uh, a version of it, a, a demo of the first season. Um, it, it's it's it goes through uh, eight seasons. Thoreau thought there should be eight seasons in a year, and um, so we sh we showed a, a demo of the first season at, at Indiecade. Can you please tell us how you went from 
the book group, and I know there's probably a lot you're going to leave out, but the brief story, how did you go from a book group talking about what is the essence of Walden Pond to extracting a system that captured that essence? Sure. Um, this, this is actually not as hard as it sounds. One of the reasons I had wanted to, I think, work on the book as a game is that uh, Thoreau himself was a kind of a cross between, he was a, on one side, he was a naturalist, a biologist, an amateur scientist, and on the other side, he was a poet. And um, so his book begins with, uh, the first two chapters are all about uh, his experiment. And it, it's like, the first chapter is called Economy. Okay, so a book that begins with a discussion of economy, you know, is going to have a system in it, right? And the second one is uh, basically all about how he built his cabin in the woods and, and, and why. So the system that we built is very much based on his words. He talks about what it takes to live, what are the basic needs of life in, in, in he says, in this climate, right? And he, he basically lays out that they are food, fuel, shelter, and clothing, that that's all a person needs. And so, you know, because I'm been, you know, I've played a lot of games, well, you know, these things poke out to me immediately as resources. And we started building systems around this notion of, uh, okay, if these are the four basic resources that a person needs to survive, then what wears them down? What, you know, what, what sort of uses those things up and how do we build them back up again? And then on the other hand, if our lives are not just about surviving, what else are they about? Uh, and he uses the rest of the book to discuss what uh, these things are. He talks about um, reading and the great ideas that one would get through reading and uh, the sounds of the forest and the solitude, um, the visitors that he got in the forest, animal and human, and the bean field that he worked in. And so there are all these other things that are not just about base level survival. And so what we did was we started layer, once we had the basic survival simulation, which is based on those four, those four needs, then we started layering in the ways that one might lead a more inspired life. So that, so the basic, the basic. It's a simulation. It's a survival simulation. It becomes a survival. Based on resource management, correct? Based on resource management. You have to, you have to uh, have enough fuel. You have to have enough food. You have to, uh, make sure your clothes are mended. You have to have a shelter. Um, but if that's all that you have, then your life is very mean. Your life is very poor. Um, and so then there are these layers of things that can also inspire you. Beyond survival, what as humans do we need for our spirits to survive? So if people play the game and they just focus on the survival simulation, they will live and they will have a nice house and they will survive and that will be all well and good, but they will not, they will not wind up finding all of the pieces of inspiration uh, that helped them to, to uh, write the book of Walden. So then you layer on self-actualization. Exactly. And they're, but hopefully very light touch. So they are the sounds, the, the sounds that he, he writes about the, um, the visitors, the sort of the animals and ideas, the, the books that he read can be found throughout the forest. Uh, and so there are all of these uh, pieces that are, that go beyond just surviving. And how do people discover those through exploration? Exactly. Um, and we don't actually try to criticize that. Um, it's just that um, they will never find all of the um, sort of more wonderful things that are out there in the woods 
um, to be discovered if they don't go out and explore and they don't search for that inspiration. And there are other things that will be prompting you, like there are letters from Emerson and uh, other characters who prompt you to go out and uh, explore beyond just your, your little corner of the woods. One of the things, one of the mechanics is a collecting mechanic. There are these arrowheads uh, throughout the, the woods that if you collect them, you actually wind up filling your journal. You have a game journal, and you wind up filling your journal with pieces of the book, pieces of Walden. And so as you collect them, you actually wind up uh, writing, quote-unquote writing, your own uh, procedural version of, of the book. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, we have this stretch goal. We haven't, we're not, we haven't done it, but one of our stretch goals is that at the end – um, people could be able to send away and get their own hardcover version of their version of Walden. Because it's so easy to print books, right, on, on demand. Right. Um, wouldn't that be neat is if people filled their journal, they could, they could send away and it would come back and look all nice and, you know, kind of hardcover and really nice, but it would be their version of their experience at Walden. What role does narrative play in this for, for you? Well... It's a really great question because that's what we're working on right now. The core of it is a system, uh, this playable sort of survival system as defined by um, Thoreau's philosophy. Uh, And then there is the world. So there's a dynamic world around you that's um, changing based on the seasons. And that makes that playable system harder and more challenging as the seasons progress. And now what we're doing is we're actually uh, layering in what, what I would call the pressures of the world. So Thoreau speaks a lot about how we must decide to live our own lives and not someone else's life. For me, you have to show on the outskirts of this philosophy-based system that we built. You have to show what has pushed him there. And so what we're doing now is we're layering in all of the relationships. Uh, We're layering in the things like his parents' pressures on him. Um, The fact that while he was actually at Walden, he was grieving for his brother who'd recently died. We're layering in the pressure that Emerson had on him. You know, he had a really contentious uh, mentorship because Emerson was constantly pressuring him to write and be more prolific, to be more like him. And Thoreau was constantly disappointing him. So I thought I find that very fascinating. The people in town, for example, uh, kind of laughed at him. He was known as that fool who burned down the woods because um, even though he loved the woods, he's known mostly for loving the woods. He had had a camping accident where he burned down a huge section of Walden Woods. Now what we're doing is basically layering in all of those things that would push him to make a decision to go out and try this experience. You're really giving us a glimpse into the process and mind of a game designer. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim. The shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.